I'll say this about Ant-Man. To its credit, it has a relatively brief running time of 125 minutes. And I got to say, even though I'm not a, a, the biggest fan of this film, it does come in at about the right time. You know, it, it really does. It, it's paced well enough. It doesn't feel like it's overextended. And where I agree with you very strongly, because we do agree occasionally, about, about once a <laughs> semester, I think we agree. But we're, we're, where we do agree is that I really did like the prologue a, a lot there in terms of establishing that everyman character with, with Paul Rudd. The pacing of that, speaking of pacing, there was an amiability to it. And frankly, you know, I've been in San Francisco and loved it. I wanted to spend some more time on the street there. I wanted a little more of that human world before we got immersed into, into the multiverse. So, you know, the silver lining for me was that because I did like that opening realistic setting in San Francisco, when they were trapped in that alternate world, I shared their frustration. I wanted to get back too. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and Cocaine Bear, starting with Ant-Man and the Wasp. Okay, Mike, this is the 31st Marvel movie, so I know one of the things we need to discuss is when will it end? But I want to start off by saying I saw this in the Screen X room. So I was absolutely surrounded by the images that they put in the movie, which I thought was a really good way to see this movie, because when you do get into the quantum realm, it was kind of cool to be surrounded by the world that they had created. So that's where I'm starting from. But Mike, what was the situation like when you saw it? It's all a matter of word choice. When you say you were surrounded by it, I felt trapped by it. <laughs> but we were both immersed in it. Actually, I would start a little further back in the sense of uh, doubling back on what you were saying. Yeah, 31st and seemingly endless. And, you know, each film, essentially, it becomes the launching pad for the next sequel. And, you know, that often works well, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, so obvious and, and kind of vexing even. Like, oh, goodness, here we go. Another villain, another episode and so on. But what I'd want to say, actually, by way of really prefacing it is, is that when you think about that Marvel Universe, Ant-Man definitely qualifies as what I call a, a, a second tier entertainment, a second tier. Like we've run through the principal heroes or superheroes. Now we go to the second tier. And yes, it's smaller as an ant and all that. But the fact that when the first Ant-Man came out in 2015, expectations were not high for it. You know, it, critically, it got a drubbing and I would have drubbed it too. But you know what? Commercially, it was a hit. It kind of surprised people that even lesser figures in the Marvel Universe were major at the box office. And then to reinforce that, when the sequel to that 2015 film came out in 2018, you know what? It did as well and even better in terms of box office performance. So clearly the public's been enamored of this. Honestly, I have not been particularly, and I'm, I'm always happy to spell out the reasons why. But in terms of why it is so popular, simply the Marvel Universe itself, but I, I would say within the Ant-Man, is there, if we have multiverses, do we have many verses too? But within the Ant-Man uh, empire, Paul Rudd is our Ant-Man. I can't say things like that without smiling a bit. I, I never thought I'd be talking this way. But when you have someone like Paul Rudd, you know what he has is what I would call sort of nice guy charisma. And it's been observed of him that, you know what, he's handsome, but not too handsome. And, you know, he becomes that that regular guy who's in this ridiculous situation, but that's what where he is. And so when you mention being placed in the, uh, the quantum realm, you know, you do sort of put yourself in his shoes like, whoa, what's this and what's that and, and so on. Can I go ahead and state one of my major reservations about the film, though? Um, yeah. I, understand, I understand what you're saying about, you know, here you have these like people living in San Francisco, more or less in, in our regular everyday world. 
and then they get zapped back into this parallel world or universe or whatever you want to call it. My major reservation is I think eventually they get swamped by the special effects. I, I think eventually it's like living in a CGI world where you're moving around all those colorful props. And the thing that bothered me after a while about this quantum realm was scene by scene, you could say, Mike, isn't that interesting? You say, whoa, look at that color. Look at that shape. What's that monster? And yeah, I'm a kid too. I sort of take all that in, admittedly. But after a while, in the aggregate, it's like just too much. And my real disappointment here was the fact that if you're going to envision some other world, I guess I'm old-fashioned in the sense of wanting some ground rules, some sense of, you know, what goes here, you know, who pays taxes and where do they go for summer vacation or whatever, just questions I might have. And here, it's so squishy. I use the word squishy. It's, it's almost as if the folks who are at the computer keyboard playing around with CGI text, well, let's try this, let's do that. And it's, it's like, you know, a little over two hours of let's do this and let's do that. And so as our human, more or less human in some cases, you know, protagonists are immersed in this quantum realm. And essentially the movie's all about you're, you're tossed into this quantum realm and you want to get out of it. You want to escape. You want to get back to San Francisco. But the problem I have there is that, well, where are they? What is this? And it just seems so arbitrary to me after a while. You know what I'm getting at? It's just like one thing after another happens. It's all loud and noisy and ultimately empty. Wow, that's a lot to to respond to. I want to start with agree with you completely that Rudd is that has that nice guy charisma. I wrote down the word everyman. He plays like the normal guy who somehow finds himself a superhero, but he doesn't get to be, you know, Batman with his brooding backstory and all the reasons why, you know, he was sort of driven to, you know, be this character, Spider-Man who you know, was bit by a spider and then, then he has these powers. He's just like a regular guy. And I love the opening and the closing, I guess, too, where they were playing this theme from Welcome Back Cotter as he's just sort of walking down the street, just being a regular guy. And you're with his thoughts and what he's thinking about. And it's a really wonderful way to start the film and ground you in his character because he does have that everyday guy, you know, likable guy to whom something extraordinary happens, which was Hitchcock's, you know, stock and trade. Take an ordinary person and then throw them into some, you know, situation that they're not prepared for. I'm with you with the, there really should be some rules for the universe, but I sort of approached it like a carnival ride. That's what I meant by, you know, the fact that it was surrounding me. You know, it was like, as soon as I knew we were being sucked into the quantum, you know, universe, it was like, all right, let's see, let's do it. And I just sort of took it on like a ride, you know, like, like you were saying, oh, look at that monster. Oh, look at that cool CGI thing. Oh, look at, look at that, look at that, look at that. And that part I actually thought was sort of fun. But this is the difference between us here. When we go to the carnival, I don't think we've gone to the carnival together yet, but if we went to the carnival, hypothetically, that would be our multiverse, going to the carnival. If we went, I would agree to sit next to you on the roller coaster. I want to go on that ride. When we finished the ride, even if I weren't sick to my stomach, when we finished the ride, I would not want to get on that ride again, whereas you immediately want to get back on that same ride. Um, <laughs> Right? Don't you think personality-wise, that's a difference? You want to get on that ride again? I think I've had enough right now. I want to sit down for a bit. You are reminding me of King's Dominion, where as soon as we got off the Rebel Yell, the roller coaster, we yeah. got right back in line to get right See back. that? I'm telling you. Because it was the pinnacle. It was the most exciting ride. So once you got on it, as soon as you got off, you wanted another rush, some of us. Well, we're all addicted to different things. And so, <laughs> so I don't share that particular addiction. But no, but, you know, joking aside on that, I think that is something for viewers. Some viewers will feel like they've had their fix. They've had enough. Others are like, give me more, more, more. That's one reason, honestly, why 
and you and I've talked about this at great length, the great length of many of the superhero movies, the fact that they do go on and on because some people just want the ride to continue. To its credit, I'll say this about Ant-Man, to its credit, it has a relatively brief running time of 125 minutes. And I got to say, even though I'm not a, a, the biggest fan of this film, it does come in at about the right time. You know, it, it really does. It, it's paced well enough. It doesn't feel like it's overextended. And where I agree with you very strongly, because we do agree occasionally, about, about once a <laughs> semester, I think we agree. But we're, we're, where we do agree is that I really did like the prologue a, a lot there in terms of establishing that everyman character with, with Paul Rudd. The pacing of that, speaking of pacing, there was an amiability to it. And frankly, you know, I've been in San Francisco and loved it. I wanted to spend some more time on the street there. I wanted a little more of that human world before we got immersed into, into the multiverse. So, you know, the silver lining for me was that because I did like that opening realistic setting in San Francisco, when they were trapped in that alternate world, I shared their frustration. I wanted to get back too. Well, I will say I, I did appreciate that it was two hours and four minutes, but I kept thinking really, if you just could have shaved off four minutes, you could have had it like at that neat two hour mark. I think they could have done that. Yeah, but you know what? In terms of the Marvel movies, if you trim that much and went a little under two hours, it would qualify as a short film. So it wouldn't it wouldn't <laughs> qualify for feature film consideration anymore. You're right. You're right about that. Okay, so you have to sit through the whole movie because there's, you know, extra things at the end. So you have to stay till the bitter end. And that is my problem with the Marvel movies going on for so long because you know you have to wait for the whole thing. So the longer they make it, actually it just makes you think, okay, the credits have started. Do I have time to race to the restroom and then come back? All right, this was my biggest problem with the movie. In the other Ant-Man movie where we went to the multiverse, it was to rescue Michelle Pfeiffer's character who, you know, had been gone for a really long time, lost in this realm. And so when they end up, you know, opening up the door to the multiverse again, she's very alarmed. And then, of course, they all get sucked into it. Once she's there, all of a sudden, she has this whole life and experience and friendships and arrangements with people that we never knew about before. It felt like they were cheating, like they just wrote in all of this backstory to make this movie work. But it wasn't anything like what you experienced with her in the other realms. It, it felt very forced and scripty. What did you think? I was really bothered as well by that aspect of the film. I think the script is really weak in that respect. And, you know, it, once you get into these characters and into this multiverse, you know, you want to have some consistency, not just within a film, but from film to film. And here, honestly, as I was watching it, I mean, we've all seen and appreciated Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer and all sorts of things. And I still like gut level found myself thinking, what are they doing here? You know, it's just on the way to picking up a paycheck and going to the bank or something. And I got to say for Michelle Pfeiffer, she looks great. I mean, in any in any universe, she still looks great. And I've always liked her as an actress, but it seemed to me she was sort of left dangling here. And let me expand or expound on that a, a bit. Namely, that uh, it seems to me they have some, you know, well-known actors and they're not given enough to do. They're not given enough substance. And so ultimately, they're just wandering around amidst the special effects. Michael Douglas in particular, you know, sometimes when he looks left, looks right. Yeah, I'd be looking like that too, you know, knowing there's a green screen behind me and there'll be a monster popping up or something. And it just seems to me there's not enough substance there. And here's where, speaking of lack of substance, the central relationship of, of sorts should be the Scott Lang character, the Ant-Man, Paul Rudd character, and his relationship with Hope Van Dyne, a.k.a. Wasp. In this film, I got Evangeline Lilly plays that female protagonist. It is so underwritten. It's, she's so underutilized. 
you know, and, and I'll, I don't mind confessing this. I mean, throughout the movie, she's often just like a prop or, or she's playing second fiddle to some special effect. You get very little sense of a human connection between those two main characters. So much so that it, yeah, like you, I sat through every one of the end credits. So I'm reading everything, you know, COVID supervisor and so on. <laughs> and, and when, when it gave the cast list and I saw her character and, and, and the actor's name of Evangeline Lilly, I mean, I knew that's who it was, but I was sort of like, oh, right. Yeah, right. She's in this. <laughs> and I, and to me, that was quite telling that I had that moment of like, oh, right. That's who that, that's who it was. There she is. And I should have been like keenly aware of that throughout the film. But doesn't she just sort of slide in and out and you almost don't feel she's there? I mean, what do you think of this? I think it's very she's very underutilized as a character here. Oh, I completely agree. And they probably had more things shot, but they tried to get it down to two hours. That's the only thing that makes sense because there's just too many people in this movie. By the way, I think Michael Douglas also looks incredible as well as Michelle Pfeiffer. They both look great. Well, either incredible or incredible or incredulous. (laughs) What have I gotten myself? I've had a distinguished career. What am I doing in this? You know what? You know what? I think people do movies like this because they have grandchildren or children. They do. They really do. And they're doing it for the the cool factor. Oh, absolutely. absolutely, What can you take your grandkids to see? They really do. He doesn't need the money at this point. He's he's sad. You just you just do it because it's a lark and you can show it to the grandkids. All joking aside, yeah. And it will make a lot of money, you know, guaranteed. And, and, it's going to make, a lot, make a lot of money off of it too. It, you're going to accept, you're not going to re- refuse the money, but, but you're right. I mean, but you know, ultimately when you think of the talent that these actors have, you know, wouldn't you rather see them doing a serious project sometimes, right? Because once you get locked into this particular series, you know, every two or three years, you're going to be on set again for the next one. And the movies you could have made that we'll never know about. Well, at least one thing they know is, is if you commit to the Marvel franchise they're gonna throw money at it so you're never gonna end up making some underfunded you know sort of indie thing late in your career yeah but you know what being overfunded can be a problem too can it you think of actors who like really had talent and then they just went for the box office and then never got back could happen how about bill murray did we need bill murray in this i know he did wanted to be in a marvel movie probably for the reasons we were just talking about but wasted in this movie totally wasted and in fact you know wasted in a really a really uh, negative sense that first of all for bill murray let him do something more and something better but yeah that's what we're talking about but also the fact that it was incredibly distracting i mean i knew going into it that he was going to pop up but when you get immersed in a world like this at some level you do want to believe it right where, where you are and having bill murray's just let me pop up could just be for a moment which is essentially what it seems like isn't that incredibly distracting and it's sort of like you know you're in this hypnotic state you're in this quantum realm and doesn't it kind of snap you out of that as you start thinking about Bill Murray and, you know, oh, I loved him in this or that. You know what? It really takes you out of the mental space that you should be in. And finally, we have to just briefly touch on Modoc. You know, it's basically like a giant head inside of a contraption, which sort of reminded me of the egg in Puss in Boots. It's kind of a fun character, but it's also sort of like a Pokemon. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little too, for my taste at least, it's a little too um, coy, a little too treacly. You know I'm getting at? It's too mm-hmm. cutesy. You know, you need some some not genuine menace, but at least a sense of menace in a, in a world like this. Right. And to me, it just becomes too much like, like a game, like 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 silly at, at that point. And so are they really being so threatened down there? Speaking of, though, a more genuine threat in the film and something we have not mentioned yet. So I will. There's a new villain. Right. There's Kang played by Jonathan right. Majors. That's, again, from the outside of our conversation, where each of these films sets up the next one. So now we have a new villain within the Ant-Man 
mini verse, and we know we'll be seeing him again. Now, I had mixed feelings about him as a villain. He had more substance than, than some of these villains might have. But what is the substance? He squares off and makes what I call Shakespearean speeches. He's got this sort of, you know, pompous rhetoric of his. And, and it's, it's, it's engaging, but it, to me, a little bit goes a long way there. Like every time he, he shows up, it's like, oh, here's the windbag again. You know, he's going he's gonna <laughs> to wave his arms and use some big words. How did you feel about him as, as a villain? So I, I, I got mixed feelings in that it's, it's a, a convincing performance and, and he holds the screen, as they say. But to me, it just seemed like, like kind of pompous, kind of pretentious the, the way he was presented. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. But this movie needed a villain to uh, create some sort of tension because otherwise it's just a nice guy who ends up sucked into the quantum realm and has to figure out how to get his family out. And it's not compelling enough. So I think they had to have a Kang character, but I don't know that I'm ready to watch more movies about him. See that. Thank you. I agree very strongly. You definitely need a villain here and he's convincing as such. But do I really want to know more about him? It's almost like, OK, I've heard him recite one Shakespeare play. You know, do I want another Shakespeare? And I keep saying Shakespeare just because he does have that kind of rhetoric. And there's sort of a, almost antique quality to him in terms of vocal delivery and so on. And it really sets him apart from almost everything else in the film, doesn't it? Almost it to the does. extent that you think, well, what is he doing here? <laughs> How did he get trapped into this world? <laughs> but we'll be well, seeing him again. We know that. You and I will be talking about him again. So we will I'm probably in six months. I'm going to read some Shakespeare in the interim and yeah, be ready for him. <laughs> well, while we're talking about well-done CGI, let's switch over to Cocaine Bear, which for anybody listening is exactly what you think it is. It is about a bear who finds some cocaine that has been dropped from a plane, which is based on a true story about a guy who had quite a lot of cocaine in his, in his airplane, parachuted and crashed into somebody's house in Tennessee. So a Tennessee or Georgia? Well, it's act it actually spreads out over a few states. Uh, okay. The cocaine, yes. the cocaine and the bodies, if, <laughs> if you will. The bear finds the cocaine and ends up, you know, expiring. He doesn't go on a rampage. So the first thing I'd say about Cocaine Bear is uh, it's had enormous attention through social media, and, and not surprisingly. And I think it deserves some sort of award for truth in advertising. You get a, <laughs> yes. title, you get, you get a title like Cocaine Bear, and you know what the movie is about. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of the, the snakes on a plane of this year. You just know what you're <laughs> in for there. But just to bolster the point that Marie was very correctly making, it is based on a true story. I'll, I'll say loose, loosely based or inspired by. In 1985, you know, there was a case where some drug smugglers, you know, the airplane got into technical difficulties, problems, it was going down. They ditched what amounted to um, 88 pounds of cocaine. That could cover a few states, probably. When we, when we were talking about states before, what happened was, as the plane went down, the, the smuggler himself was bailing out, his parachute failed. He was found, you know, sad to say, in terms of demise in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. But then in terms of the plane's wreckage and, and those bags of cocaine, they had been ditched. They went into a national forest in, in Georgia. That's all true. Now, what's also true there is that the uh, the bear itself not only indulged, but but overindulged. It, it became it became a cocaine addict, if you will. And the bear very quickly uh, expired. And they found it essentially dead of a drug overdose. And I went back and I checked. The Associated Press actually had reported on this in 1985. And this is how the AP, this is a direct quote, how the AP story read about what happened to the bear. A bear that died of a multi-million dollar high. <laughs> and so that's essentially what happens. Now, when you think about it, that would not be much of a movie, would it? Because the movie would open with a dead bear. So what they do here, which is actually very clever, is what if the bear didn't die automatically, but just simply became addicted to it and had to keep searching out the bags in the forest? What would happen then as the bear 
totally high, you know, interacted with, with human beings. And so that's the premise for the film. And there's a lot I want to say about this film, but let me turn it back over to you and then and then I'll say a lot. Okay, well, what I did not expect to like this movie, I am not a body horror kind of person. And there were several scenes that were really very graphic and shocking. Having said that, I enjoyed this movie. And I'm almost ashamed to say so because it's not, in some ways, it's like your basic B movie where it's got some sort of, you know what the what it's going to be even as you sit down you know exactly what's going to happen but what i found to be so enjoyable was that they give you these characters that are immediately unlikable and so you're rooting for the bear you want the bear to get them and to eat them and so when it happens there's this sort of guilty glee in the demise of characters you've been set up to know you know you're probably being positioned to be eaten by the bear and the cgi on the bear is incredible there's no real bear. It's all CGI. I found that very, very believable and well done. Okay, Mike, go ahead. I saw this film with an audience and we all engaged in enthusiastic laughter. I was laughing <laughs> at that. I was cackling through a lot of it. It really is a very funny film. So yes, it's enjoyable more so than I thought it would be. I mean, it really mm -hmm. is engaging, but I do have a major reservation about it. And it actually bothered me quite a bit during the film. And namely, there's what I call a tonal imbalance. In other words, some of it is just like silly, goofy, and so on. You just laugh at it because the bear has almost like supernatural powers at times, right? <laughs> and it's a very convincing, you know, computer-generated bear. It really is. But the problem here is you, you have some human characters. Yeah, some of them are despicable, like drug smuggler types. And yeah, you know, you want the bear to, to get that guy, right? Yeah, let's fess up. You know, you want the bear. But you know what? There's some others who aren't so bad. Like, And here's where I really have, think there's a problem with the film. It has really gory, really graphic violence. Sometimes that is funny, almost like in a Cone Brothers sort of way. Like, oh, there's a detached limb, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of a way. But sometimes it's like really disturbing. Like, should we laugh at this? I'll give a very quick example. One of the human characters who is sympathetic is a park ranger played by Margot Martindale. And, you know, she's meant to be a comic. You could see her in a Cone Brothers film almost, right? She could be a sheriff yes. in a Cone Brothers film. But the thing is... I don't want to spoil anything in the film, but she's going to be roughed up by the bear. I'll put it that way. And there's a scene where her face is being dragged across the road along the asphalt. And it's up close and it's really graphic. Am I supposed to laugh at that? And this is where the, the film for me was really disturbing in a way that I didn't find funny at all. I just thought it was exploitation in that pejorative sense, right? Like, what are we supposed to make of this? So that was my major disappointment was the tonal imbalance. Then there's a, there's a mother with a young child that's gone lost. Not, she is meant to be totally sympathetic, and she is. But when you bounce around from scenes like that, you're supposed to care about her, to other scenes where you're supposed to laugh if somebody gets killed in a horrible way, that's a problem, I think, in a film. Like, well, what are we supposed to say or, or, or respond to here? The other disappointment's a more minor one, minor in the sense that it was unavoidable within the film. This is the last, or just about the last film made by Ray Liotta. And, you know, who died last May. And he plays a, a drug kingpin, a really bad character, bad guy. So in that sense, you should be kind of happy if, if the bear is going to go after him. But by the same token, we all know this actor and what what, what happened to him in, in real life. And this is where it's really melancholic for me as a viewer, because I'm watching him in what's probably his final performance. And I'm just thinking, gosh, he's no longer with us. And I'm thinking about him in other movies, including other movies involving cocaine like Goodfellas. 
And I'm just thinking the actors in All North is now when I say a minor disappointment, I, I mean in the sense that, well, they couldn't have done anything about it. They dedicate the film to them, but once you get in the film, you're in the film. So for me, it was like my mood was unsettled as I watched it. I go from scenes where I'm laughing out loud because it's so ridiculous and so funny. Other scenes where I think, no, this is like too much. It's so gory. And you know, you want me to laugh at this. And then there's a Ray Liotta. I'm thinking, I'm feeling sad because you know he, the actors no longer with us. So I was feeling just uh, basically kind of unsettled by it after a while. How about you? It is sad that this is the last movie Ray Liotta made because this is not, I don't think, a career-making move. And, you know, I'd like to get your take on why Ray Liotta would make this movie. And we were just talking about, you know, the Marvel universe. I can see, if only for money, why people would want to be associated with that, if not to impress children or grandchildren or what have you. But I disagree about the Margot Martindale character. And I love that actress, and I was really glad to see her in it. But she was kind of a problematic character in that she was really interested in in that man that was coming by, not in being a ranger. She was she was rude to people who came in who were interrupting what she was trying to make happen. So I thought they sort of painted her as somebody untrustworthy and unlikable from the get-go. Now, the scene that you're talking about on the road, the way she gets on the road was hilarious. I could have done without the dragging, though. Um, well, you know what, Marie, you know, she is rude, but I would have been rude to those people too. And in other words, <laughs> in other words if, you, if you have a roster of like unlikable characters, there are characters who are more unlikable than she is. So I'm getting at, and, and I think what I'm also doing is because I like her as an actress, I'm bringing that baggage with me, favorable associations. So I don't mind as much when she's rude. <laughs> but Mike, I think if you were the ranger and you were trying to get an assignation off the ground, you would be more professional than she was when the the mother of the missing child wants help. You know, I would think that she would forget about what you had planned for that day for another day. She's clearly bitter about it and mean and nasty about it. So but you know, but, that gets you a bite from the bear in my book. Well, but, but, you know what? but as a character, she has more character than some of the other people. And I'm getting at she has character. That's true. And I keep mentioning the Coen brothers here because you really get to know her in a way that you don't get to know some of the other characters as well. And so there's more, there's a greater degree of identification there you know, in terms of what will happen to her. I care more about her fate, let's say, than the fate of some others. And, and I found her rudeness funny oftentimes. Maybe I can't justify it on a humanitarian level, but she was funny as she was being rude. She was funny. There were a lot of things in the movie that were really funny. I especially thought some of the conversation between the two kids, like trying to pretend like they knew how to do cocaine and they both tried to eat it and, you know, just trying to be cool. Also the scene of the bear taking an entire, I think it's a kilo brick, <laughs> just eating the whole thing, just swallowing it. Not even, you know, you see the kids like trying to eat the powder. No, the entire brick, just swallowing the whole thing. There are moments that I thought were just absolute genius. That's why they actually nicknamed the bear Cokie. <laughs> they did. I thought I thought the name like of Bruce, Bear, Bruce and Jaws. If this was Cokie and Cocaine Bear. I, I heard they were calling him Pablo Escobar. They were actually. Pablo Escobar was the other one. He, had, he, he accrued various nicknames. So they obviously had a lot of fun making it, which may double back on your question before, why would Ray Liotta do it? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine somebody sent you this script and you don't know if you should throw it in the trash can or call your agent and say, let's do it. I mean, it has that, it's that kind of a film, right? They're like, this is ridiculous. Or yes, it's ridiculous. Let's do it. You had to have a lot of fun making this film. How could you not? I mean, How could you not? I don't want to spoil any of the, the particular scenes, but when you look just how outrageous some of the scenes are in terms of a bear attacking people under these conditions, you had to be like giggling on the set as you're like trying to keep a straight face as you did the scene. Now, one of the, the characters that I felt were unjustly dispatched were the EMTs. 
you know, these I mean, are just people been, responding to the scene. That, But that seemed like random bear thing, right? Well, Marie, but that's part of the tonal imbalance I was talking about. Like, well, you know, watching this film, is it still funny at a time like that? And yet the film's presenting as if it were. Now, of course, they put two children in peril. So, you know, you have to, from the get-go, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, I hope the kids are going to be okay. And when's mom going to find out where she is? And of course, track her down because nothing's going to stop Mama Bear, right? I mean, She's a Mama Bear that- character. I love when the Mama Bears confront each other. These are Mama Bears. But yes. you, know, it is, you know, even though it's kind of pushing the envelope in various ways in terms of humor, it is an American feature film and nothing will come between a mother and her child for long. You know what I mean? That That's sort of a truism, isn't it, in American cinema? Like any number of other characters will be dispatched violently, but not, not this mama bear. And I want to give a shout out to Elizabeth Banks for taking a risk by doing this film because it doesn't seem like the sort of thing you'd uh, debut, but I think she did a pretty impressive job because I think this is going to be a cult classic. It but definitely that- has cult appeal, but she's done pop, as a director, she's done pop culture oriented things like the Charlie's Angels reboot and all. I mean, she knows, she knows silly. Let's put it that way. She knows silly for sure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.